Okay. The rapture. So we're going to start looking at the different, the four basic, and there's hundreds of others, but the four basic positions on uh, the end times, you know, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, amillennialism. And then, you know, the Mormons have theirs, and the Seventh-day Adventists have theirs, and the Jehovah's have theirs, and the Christian science have theirs. But I mean, the, the four, you know, sort of realistic ones. But they all have, well, amillennialism doesn't. But the three tribulation ones obviously have a rapture. So there's your rapture picture right there. So let's see everybody's phones. Phones, phones, phones. The iPhone? Droid? Okay, so you've all got your COVID tracking devices turned off, right? Yes, there is. And go to Google, go to Google, go to, well, there's the, ultimately, we really would prefer that you people don't have COVID tracking device. And I know they track them anyway, even when you turn it off, but, you know, um, Okay, so because obviously if, you know, somebody runs into somebody who runs into somebody else who runs into somebody else and then they run into you and you come here and I can't work for 14 days, I'm not going to be happy about it, which of course I would never stay home anyway, but okay. We can, we can look into it later, but yeah, they've changed all the stuff. It used to be pretty obvious and then they've tried to hide it and you know it's operating anyway because it's the government, but yeah, I'm thinking I'm going to go get a flip phone or a burner and leave my real phone at home and just forward the calls to my burner or something. I don't know. Okay, so today is? Oh, COVID-19 exposure notification Good. Make sure it stays off. Nice job, dude. And you're welcome for putting that up there. So, yeah, please check your phone and make sure you don't. And leaving it in the car doesn't help because it's in my driveway. <laughs> um, <clears throat> okay, so <laughs> it's too late. They already know you're here. Yeah. But they can turn it on automatically. So check, check it off and in. Check it, you know, certainly check it before you come here. <laughs> Okay, so today is, yes, thank you so much. Someone's not afraid to answer the questions. They're not all trick questions. Sometimes I just want to know. It's Friday, August 14th. Shabbat Shalom. It is, well, it won't be Shabbat Shalom until apparently 8.33 tonight when the sun goes down. But we'll all be here having a good time. Okay, so. It's pre-Shabbat Shalom, that's right. So next Friday would be the 21st, which will be here, which is also the first day of Elul. And Elul is the month before, uh, we may have something up there. And we'll talk a little bit more about this next time. But the, there are many things I love about the way the Hebrews look at scripture. And one of them is they have this almost constant devotion to the Lord and to the things of the Lord. 
So there, there are always a feast or a holy day or there's a new moon or there's, uh, you know, any number of things like Elul where it's our job to concentrate on the Lord. So this whole month of Elul, the 30 days before Rosh Hashanah and then the 10 days from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur are called the 40 days of awe. And the goal is to spend those 40 days in prayer and supplication, because if you're Jewish, Yom Kippur is the deal, because they don't know the Messiah. So the only salvation they get is every year at Yom Kippur. So before they get to Yom Kippur, they have to make absolutely certain they are walking with the Lord. Otherwise, it's a bad thing. Now, th th I like that because it happens every year. You have to think about this for 40 days every year. Christians, you get saved when you're 10. You really don't ever think about it again. So <clears throat> starting next Friday is the 40 days of, of, of awe, the 30 days of the month of Elul. We'll talk about it a little bit more. But I just want you to psych up for spending, you know, sometime every day, maybe more than you normally do, just thinking about your relationship with the Lord because it's always important, but this year it may be even more important because come Rosh Hashanah, 30 days from next Friday, that is, um, you know, that's like the eight to five favorite for the day of the rapture if you're a pre-tribber. Okay, <clears throat> so some of the COVID news this, this week, um, you know, Colorado and presumably other places, if you have, if you've tested positive or you think you're sick, or you think you have COVID, or you do have COVID, or a flu or a cold, which is basically the same thing, um, the doctors tell you to go home and take aspirin and Gatorade. They don't want to treat you, which is interesting. Gatorade. Yeah, you know, because Gatorade cures everything. Well, it's true, you know, but dehydrating is usually because you're throwing up, yes? Okay, well, anyway. So this is the first time I could find in the history of history that the government has banned drugs because they're too effective. So Governor Polis will not let you use hydroxychloroquine because it will cure COVID. Okay. Uh, in England now, the authorities can demolish homes, cars, and airplanes of people who have COVID. Now, of course, it doesn't take a genius to realize you can't kill COVID with a bulldozer but it's just punitive for those who refuse to comply. That's coming here soon. Australia, they're breaking windows. You know, I told you they had police on every street corner, two or three on every street corner to make sure you don't go more than three miles from home and you're not out for more than an hour once a week. They're breaking the windows of cars and pulling people out who are not complying. The police are doing this. In California, a group like this, unless we're uh, black and protesting police brutality, they can come in and shut the water off to my home because there's too many people meeting here. Um, the economy is so bad and they're spending so much money that uh, the derivative market, they say, <laughs> derivatives are a bad thing. They're money owed. Banks have twisted the verbiage to make them an asset. But they say there's four quadrillion dollars in derivatives. It's money that can never be paid back. So basically the entire world is insolvent. This country is certainly insolvent, but it's a paperwork uh, scam to make you believe that we actually go to work and get money and buy things. And uh, so soon the banks will be charging us to keep our money in their bank. 
it'll be reverse uh, reverse interest. Remember the bombing last week in Lebanon, you know, and there was some talk about this being the technocrats just shooting a you know shot across the bow of the countries who aren't cooperating. The entire government of Lebanon quit in mass because they were so afraid that the technocrats were going to kill them all. Uh, the guy who allegedly, and I'm not sure I buy this 100%, designed the RFID chip that goes in the vaccines, suddenly became a Christian and is now repenting of what he's done in his video saying what he did and he's so sorry and don't take the vaccines. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if I buy it, but it was, it was an interesting account. Um, New Zealand, which we mentioned last week, which has basically been free and open and mask free the whole time, uh, is now on lockdown because the technocrats want them to be on lockdown. And the, the reason given, they have four, four positive cases. All in one family. So the obvious response, I mean, I'm sure you can get there on your own. The obvious response is to lock the entire country down, destroy the economy. Okay, New York City now claims to have the lowest positive rate of any major metropolitan area in the nation. And the teachers union has decided they're not teaching. Just this week, Israel and the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, signed a peace accord, and I, you heard it here first, I'm betting next, the next one to fall will be Saudi Arabia. And this is this peace reco record, this is this peace accord that Jared Kushner has been working on, right? One of the, one of the boys has been working on with Netanyahu for uh, since early, since spring. And we've talked a, a little bit about it before. It's, it's sort of slang called the deal of the century. And what they need to do they're encouraging the Israeli government to get, give up parts of Jerusalem, which they will never do. But the trade-off was they can build the temple, which they desire to do. So it's been interesting watching this whole thing because obviously the temple is a big deal when it comes to prophecy and end times. So this deal today or earlier in the week between the United Arab Emirates and Israel is part and parcel to that deal of the century. So we may be getting closer to the Arab world okaying Israel putting up the temple. And as a pre-tribber, if that's true, I believe we're gone before the temple goes up. I want to read to you from Ezekiel chapter 38. And of course, I would, you know, would encourage you to read 38 and 39 and, you know, that whole section thoroughly and Matthew 24 and some other stuff. But anyway, Ezekiel 38, starting in verse 11, it says, And thou shalt say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages. I will go up to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls and having neither bars nor gates to take a spoil, to take a prey, to turn thine hand upon the desolate place that are now inhabited, upon the people which are gathered out of the nations that have gotten cattle and goods and dwell in the midst of the land, Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish with all the young lions thereof shall say unto thee, Are thou come to take a spoil? Hast thou gathered thy company to prey, to carry away silver and gold and to take away cattle and goods, to take away a great spoil? So this is the... Battle of Armageddon. And all these countries have come against 
Israel, and that you get that from the first part of Ezekiel 38, and it lists all the countries. And then it says, Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and the young lions thereof. Well, Sheba and Dedan is typically Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates is right there. So you can say that Sheba and Dedan are uh, that sort of general area of uh, the Middle East. And Saudi Arabia has not been aggressive like the other countries in the Middle East. And, you know, the United Arab Emirates is like the size of Eagle. They, they're just trying to stay out of the way and not get squished. Uh, and then you've got Tarshish, which is typically England, and the young lions thereof, which could easily be us, right, America. So there's these groups of people that all, as all the countries amass around Israel to, to begin this battle of Armageddon, uh, there are some countries that are standing back going, whoa, what are you doing? Are you just going to go in and take a spoil, you know, or are you, you going to try to kill all these people? And they're basically chickening out. So that's Saudi Arabia, presumably United Arab Emirates, um, probably Western Europe, England, and the United States. We'll be, instead of defending Israel, we'll be going, well, what are you doing? So just, you know, it's not, not my words. That's straight out of the Bible. Um, one of the cool things about Ezekiel 38 and 39 is it seems to describe a tactical nuclear attack during this battle of Armageddon. It's not really a battle. There really aren't any battles in... Uh, thank you like that because the Lord always intervenes and puts an end to it. And this first battle of Armageddon, and th this is another thing, as we talk about the four positions, the four main positions, and then all these other aberrant positions, which we won't spend much time on. Um, a lot of these end times positions believe that there's only one battle of Armageddon, even though scripture seems to describe two. It seems to describe one in the beginning of the book of Revelation, and it seems to describe one at the end because they're different. The words are the same, the players are the same, and the result is basically the same. So it, it kind of depends on your understanding of how you read uh, the things at the end. I tend to believe there will be two, and there will be a you know, the first, what we call the first battle of Armageddon um, soon, because it will happen probably right after a pre-tribulation rapture. Now, if you're a mid-tribber or a post-tribber or an amillennialist, you're going to get to see all that stuff. But this, uh, and the reason people think this is a, a, a nuclear attack is Ezekiel 39, and I'm just going to read a little list, starting in verse 6. It says, I will send a fire on Magog. Okay, Magog is Russia-ish. Okay, thank you. And those that dwell carelessly in the isles. Who's that? I would suggest us, England, United States, because we're basically islands, and we basically dwell carelessly. So there's going to be a fire that comes on Russia and... England and United States, perhaps, you know, these countries that are sort of not involved. And I can't help but wonder if we're not seeing part of that now, this COVID thing and all the riots and the burning. And just because you don't see it on TV, there are like 33 major cities in this country that are virtually on fire. The entire downtown areas of these countries or cities have been looted. 
the police are told to stand back. In fact, the police in Seattle just said, finally, we're not even going in there anymore because we arrest all these people and then the prosecutors just turn them loose. They won't even prosecute them. So why are the cops risking their lives to do what? You know, so they're just abandoning all that stuff. So I'm wondering, because forever I had thought, you know, I will send a fire on Magog means, you know, and he's talking about a nuclear exchange. Well, I wonder if that means we're going to get, you know, a random nuke from Iran sent over here or something. But now I'm thinking it might just be part and parcel to all of the destruction we see going on right now. Okay, I will send fire on Magog and among them that dwell carelessly in the isles, and they shall know that I am the Lord. So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let them pollute my holy name anymore. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Behold, it is come, it is done, saith the Lord God. This is the day whereof I have spoken. So the reason that all this comes to pass, of course, is so that everyone knows the Lord. And again, we, you know, we've talked about this before. The whole purpose of the tribulation is to bring the Jews to a knowledge of the Messiah. It's to, it's to bring them, allow them and the rest of the world to know that God is God. You know, you can, you can say, oh, I'm an atheist or I don't believe or whatever, but the time is coming when no matter who you are, your knee is going to bow and you're going to know that the God of Israel, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is God. And that's the same thing that the Pharaohs came to understand. And, you know, there's a number of people in the Tanakh who came to understand that. So all of this, Ezekiel 38, 39, uh, all of the end time stuff, Malachi, Hosea, uh, Ezekiel, all these guys, all of this is for that purpose, so that Yahweh will be known to the entire world. It's, it's, his, it's his final shot of grace and mercy to those who have not yet turned to him, because he's providing uh, the situation for which these people may desire to turn to God when they never have in the past. And this is his, uh, this is his grace and mercy. The Bible uses like 60 different terms or more. Uh, end times, time of the end, latter days, the great day of the Lord, the, you know, the end of days, the end of time. There's all sorts of words and euphemisms and stuff that they use. And we read that and we kind of think it's all the same thing. And uh, I would suggest that it may not be. It's, it's, worth, uh, it's worth looking into because especially when you start looking at the basic, the four basic positions at the end time, it does sort of make a difference what the Bible says and how it says it and who he's talking to and when they're talking and what they're talking about. And those things are always important. And sometimes we overlook them because we're so sealed in our belief of whatever our end time thing is we don't really stop to see if there's something else the Bible might be telling us. So this idea of uh, uh, the, the, the revelation, the tribulation, the book of revelation being God's last bit of grace and mercy to the world does not preclude the truth that the guilty will be punished. And uh, that sort of goes along hand in hand with all this stuff. We used to think way back when I was saved, you know, back with covered wagons and stuff, 
at Pebble Hill and Calvary Chapel in Santa Barbara. And we were very into the whole end times thing. And I guess that was pretty popular back in the 80s and 90s. And everybody was talking about and, you know, doing all the end time stuff. And we used to sort of tongue in cheek talk about that guy, that last guy who was going to be saved. He would close his eyes and bow his head and say the sinner's prayer. And he'd open his eyes and he'd be in heaven with the Lord. And it's like, that would be cool to be that guy but he doesn't know anything you know he's he's been saved eight seconds right and yet he's in heaven and it seems almost unfair that people who have uh, walked with the lord for 50 80 years and who have spent their entire life ministering and sacrificing and doing things for the lord that their reward is the same as this a potential drug addict, sex crazed teenage kid who's been saved for eight seconds. Well, Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, which I'm not going to read all of but you know it, it's the parable of the wage earner. So the master of the field goes out, the, the, the harvest is, is white, right? It's, it's ready to go and he needs it to be harvested. So he goes into town and he hires all the workers he can get and he says, I'll pay you a Daenerys, a day's, work for, a day's wage for a Roman soldier, which is good money. Go in and work in my fields. And then he goes out four hours later and finds more and says, I'll pay you what it's worth. He goes out four hours later and finds more, goes out, one hour before quitting time, finds more, sends them all into the field. And then at the end of the day, he turns it around. The guys who went in last came out first and he pays them a day's wage. And everybody's whining, you know, and the, the, they've been there toiling all day long. Well, he got the same that I got. Well, that's, that's sort of the way it works. Matthew 20, verses 14 and 16. <clears throat> Take that thine is and go thy way. I will give unto the last, even as I gave unto thee. It is not unlawful for me to do with my own what I want. Is thine eye evil because I am good? So the last shall be first and the first shall be last. For many shall be called, but few are chosen. And so I would just encourage us all to not get wrapped up in that, you know, just to be excited for that guy who closes his eyes, no matter how he's lived his entire life, closes his eyes and wakes up in heaven. And he has exactly the same benefits as we do. The benefit that we had that he didn't is we were able to live our lives in a way that was pleasing and useful to God. And I don't know how that's going to play out in heaven, but I, 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 I believe that um, it won't matter. won't matter what. <laughs> That's true. He'll have mercy on whom he has mercy. And then the rest of that. Okay, we won't, we won't go there. Okay, so um, Ezekiel 39 is famous for describing this uh, nuclear battle. And I just want to read part of it for you here. Um, and they that dwell in the, this is starting in verse 9. And they that dwell in the cities of Israel shall go forth 
and set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and the bucklers and the bows and the arrows and the hand staves and the spears, and they shall burn them with fire for seven years, so that they shall take no wood out of the field, neither cut down any of the forest, for they shall burn the weapons with fire, and they shall spoil those that spoiled them, and rob those that robbed them, saith the Lord. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will give unto Gog a place there of the graves in Israel, the valley of the passengers on the east of the sea, and they shall stop the noses up of the, of the passengers, and they shall bury Gog and all his multitudes, and they shall call it the valley of Hamangog. And seven months shall the house of Israel be burying them, that they may cleanse the land. Yea, all the people of the land shall bury them, and it shall be to them a renown the day that I shall glorify the day, the day that I shall be glorified, saith the Lord God. And they that shall sever out men of continual employ, professionals, passing through the land to bury them with the passengers, those that remain on the face of the earth to cleanse it. After the end of seven months, they shall search. The passengers that pass through the land, if they see any man's bones, they shall set up a sign by it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Hamangog. So it, it's interesting, and I'm sure all you people know this from your uh, home tactical nuclear devices you have, that every seven years you have to reprocess a nuke. Otherwise it starts to get unstable and you know you can't, can't really use it. So it's interesting that it says um, for seven years they will not have to get any wood to burn any, you know, they, won't, they will have a power source. Now, you know, forever it has been, or at least since the 50s, known that you have to reprocess a nuke every seven years. So a lot of people have said, wow, how did that, you know, how did God know that? But also this is seven years, seven years. You know, the tribulation is seven years. So after the end of uh, the first battle of Armageddon till the second battle of Armageddon is seven years. So it, it also makes sense like that. Uh, and it says that if, if you see a dead body or a bone, seven months later, it's not a body anymore, it's a bone, you don't touch it. You go and find the professionals, the, guy, the, 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 the men of severed out of continual employ, the professionals. You go find them. So you just stick a sign there, you know, like one of the little police shooting things, and you stick the sign there and you go tell the professionals where it is and they come bury it. And the way it's laid out, they bury it downwind because of course if it's radioactive you can't touch it you need the guys in the hazmat suits and they need to pick it up and treat it with the respect it deserves and they take it downwind and bury it in the ground um, so it also says they don't do this for seven months after the battle because it's too hot if it's if it's nuke you can't touch it even with a suit on so the uh, United States Army a manual on NBC warfare tells you all these things exactly like this. You have to, you have to get the guy in the hazmat suit, the professional, you have to wait seven months and you want to bury it in the ground and you probably want to bury it downwind. You do not want to touch it. And it's just interesting that that's exactly the way this is written. So this, this word uh, passengers is the word abar and it means to cross over. So when it says passengers, they're sort of talking about tourists or foreigners or, uh, 
people who have crossed over, you know, like you've crossed the border and where you're going to cross back. Um, and then the word Hamangog, Gog you get, you know, that's the leader of the other, the other team, if you were. But Hamon is uh, the word for um, tumult, destruction, noise, crowd, you know, that sort of thing. So it's the tumult of Gog. And it says in the vale or the valley of Hamangog. And vale is this word gava, which means ex exaltation. So ultimately what it's saying is um, all this that's going on is, is the exaltation of God over the destruction of the enemies. Um, anyway. Okay, so Ezekiel 39, starting in verse 21. It says, and I will set my glory among the heathen and all the heathen shall see my judgment that I have executed and my hand I have laid upon them. So the house of Israel shall know that I am their Lord God from that day forward. And the heathen shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their inequity because they trespassed against me. Therefore, I hid my face from them and gave them into the hand of their enemies. So fell they all by the sword. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions, I have done unto them. Then I hid my face from them. Therefore, saith the Lord God, now I will bring again the captivity of Jacob and have mercy upon the whole house of Israel and will be jealous for my holy name. And after that, they have borne their shame and their trespasses where they have trespassed against me when they dwelt safely in the land and none made them afraid. I have brought them again from the people and gathered them out of their enemy's land. And I am sanctified in them in the sight of many nations. They shall know that I am the Lord, their God, which caused them to be led into captivity among the heathen. But I have gathered them into their own land and have left none of them any more there. Neither will I hide my face any more from them. For I've poured out my spirit upon the house of Israel, saith the Lord God. So that's the purpose of the tribulation of these seven years. If, if what I think is true, if the church is raptured out, the tribulation comes for this purpose because his people have been, well, you, you know how his people are. And he's turned his face from them many times. And he said, I will bring you back this last time and you will be my people. So, and again, if, you know, pre-trib, I think we're gone. Mid-trib, it's basically the same, just three and a half years later. Post-trib, none of this is any different from those three positions. All of this stuff, you still have a rapture. You still have the purpose uh, being the same, that we all know God and all, all that sort of thing. Um, okay. So I want to look at, which was the whole point of all this, um, I want to try to look at these four basic positions and, you know, and maybe we'll spend a little bit of time on some of the more aberrant um, beliefs, but amillennialism is what like 76% of people who call themselves Christians believe. And that's because that's what the Catholic church believes. So if you're a Catholic or if you're a Lutheran or if you're a, 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 an Episcopal or a Methodist, or, you know, there's a whole, all of them are basically Catholic, doctrine-wise. So then you had the big Protestant revolution, right, where they protested all the things of the Catholic Church. 
So out of 12 million things that the Catholic Church is wrong, uh, the, the protesters changed like three of those things. So they're basically Catholics without having to pay indulgences. So, you know, most people who call themselves Christians sort of by default believe in the amillennialist position, which is basically um, that the entire book of Revelation, in fact, much of the Bible, is not literal, it's figurative. And so you can't take literally the, uh, you know, the, the bulls and the wrath and the judgments and all that. Those are just pictures of things that are happening, you know, towards the end. And there's no particular time frame, as I understand it. Uh, you know, and you look around the world and it's, 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 uh, it's an easy case to make that these things, according to the book of Revelation, have been happening. Um, but anyway, I'm no expert in that, but I have a friend who has been my friend for 30 some odd years who is an expert at it. <laughs> So I have asked him, I think I told you this last week, or I told you I talked to him, um, and he's agreed to, you know, zoom in and do a lesson on amillennialism, and you guys can ask, ask questions and all that stuff. So I'm not going to get too far into that. Um, I'll leave that for Patrick. But, um, and I, I now have a guy who's a dyed-in-the-wool mid-tribber, or he calls it pre-wrath. So I'm either going to have him do it, well, because the tribulation is seven years, right? The book of Revelation is seven years. And the first three and a half years are not bad. I mean, they're, you know, they're not like wrath and judgment and bulls and, you know, and all that stuff. That comes afterwards. So there's a division in the middle of that seven years. And that's when the, the beast declares himself God and goes into the temple and insists everybody worship him as God. So there's a, the, the mid, that's why they call it pre-wrath because I don't think they like the whole mid-trip thing. But anyway, uh, he's, he's the, he lives and breathes that, so I'm going to either have him do it or get, get his notes, and he's going to do it for me. Um, I'm fairly confident about the pre-trib, so I can present that to you. So today, I'm going to talk about um, the post-tribulation rapture, which believes that the church will be raptured at the end of the seven years. Now, does anybody think that's crazy? Everybody here kind of thinks that's crazy, except Kent, who might be a post-tripper. Okay. Um, none of these positions are crazy when you have somebody who understands the position and can explain it confidently. They all make a great deal of sense. And that was one of the reasons that uh, I, I wanted to explain them to you and then all of you who were here last week seemed reasonably enthusiastic about actually hearing these four positions because whatever church we belong to or whatever denomination we're in, we kind of only get that. We never, nobody ever explains to us why people believe something different. And it's not an issue of salvation. Nobody believes that, you know, you can't be saved and believe in pre-tribulation or amillennialism or any of that stuff. It's... Uh, it's, it's almost just a matter of sanctification because what you believe affects how you act. And if you, for instance, are a post-tribulation believer, the next thing you're looking for is the revealing of the beast. You're looking for the temple to come, 
the beast to come, him to go into the temple and demand to be worshiped. You're looking for the, uh, what is it? 21 bowls and wraths and, and all the stuff in the book of revelation that all has to happen before we get raptured. And, uh, you know, Paul says, comfort each other with these words. And I'm thinking, that is not comforting to me. <laughs> but nonetheless, um, okay. So if you are a post-tribulation believer, you believe that there's a rapture, just like the picture we saw. It just doesn't come until after the tabernacle, after the abomination of desolation, which is Matthew 24, 15 for you note takers, after the last battle. And in, in, that, in that case, most post-tribulation believers probably only believe in one battle of Armageddon, uh, which is Revelation 16, verses 12, or 12 to 16. Um, so all that stuff has to happen. And that is probably the predominant position for uh if you're not an amillennialist you know in the major denomination if you're a protestant or a quaker or uh, they called it premillennialism because they believe that we would go just before the millennial not you know lord's going to come back and and rule and reign for a thousand years which is the millennium and we're with him so for most of the history of history, a lot of the churches that we might consider Christian, as opposed to, say, Catholic variants, um, believed in a pre-millennial rapture, meaning we would go just prior to the millennium. So this post-tribulation thing is not, uh, you know, it's not aberrant. <laughs> it's actually reasonably popular. So if you're going to do any homework, um, besides Ezekiel 37, 38, 39, Matthew 24 is a good chapter to read. <clears throat> well, they're all good chapters, but okay. So I want to read from Matthew 24, starting in verse nine. And it says, and they shall deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. And you should be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and still hate one another. So th this is, you know, this is Matthew 24, right? This is the, ver the, the chapter where the disciples came to him and said, well, tell us, you know, when is this going to happen? And he goes through the earthquakes and the ethnic group against ethnic group and the church and politics and, you know, and all that stuff, if you read it in the original language. And in the midst of that, he says this, you know, that, that they're going to, kill you and deliver you up and you're going to be afflicted and hated and you know well that doesn't kind of jive with the whole pre-tribulation i'm out of here before the wrath thing so it might indicate that we're actually going to be here to see this stuff because that was jesus answer to the disciples was you will know these things are coming because Wars, rumors of wars, you know, you know, you go through the whole thing, volcanoes, earthquakes, the raging of the sea, the animals will get all whacked out. And he throws this in, you're going to be killed and, you know, turned in by your brothers. And he goes through this whole list of things. Well, 
the post-tribulationist will tell you, and I mean, you can make your own judgments, that he's saying the church is going to be here for that stuff. Yes. Yes, it is. And it's always happened. Yeah, maybe. Exactly. So now you're an amillennialist. Congratulations. Well, right. Yeah, that's why you should read the whole chapter and put it in context. But those are the beginning of sorrows. Well, you're going to be here to see it. And he's telling you, you're going to be killed and abused and turned in by your brothers and all that stuff. Okay, well, that's, and again, I'm telling you post-tribulation, how they got there and how churches for hundreds, thousands of years got there. And so they read stuff like that. So it continues in verse 29. And it says, now listen to this. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the son of man in heaven. And then shall the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory or great glory, as we used to say. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So it says immediately after this tribulation, will he collect the elect from the four winds? Well, it's hard not to see what it says. Did you have a question? No, not you. The one over... Yeah, today, there's no, there doesn't say Glenwood in here anywhere. Um, yes, yes, yes. And when's the trumpet? Immediately after these things. It's at the end. They could be. Immediately. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, and then it says, they send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds and from one heaven. Yes. <laughs> you should get a real Bible. <laughs> Is that your Jewish Bible? Okay. What? What? Oh, her, her Bible says trouble, not tribulation. It would have to be big T, but maybe not. If, it, if it's little T, yeah, that's King James. You can't, you can't take it for anything. Okay. Well, it could be, but it's talking about the book of Revelation. And those are the wraths and the bulls and the judgments, and those come after the uh, beast. And there's no question that those come after the beast. So if that's the tribulation or the trouble they're talking about, then you, there's no other way to read this it, other than the rapture doesn't come until after those things. I'm just arguing the case for them, okay? So it's hard to argue with the whole after the tribulation thing. Verse 16 adds, let them which be in Judea flee unto the mountains, right? It's discussing all this stuff. Okay, does anybody see another problem with this? Huh? 
Something about Judea? Okay. Everything in scripture, you, you need to see who's speaking, who they're speaking to, and what's the context of why they're saying this. So if we go back to this whole deal about the elect, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Who are the elect? The elect, the, the people that are elected, right? Okay, well, who's elect? Are you elect? Are the Jews elect? Well, they're the chosen people. I don't know. I'm just saying, if it were me and I was interpreting this, instead of just reading it in English, I would try to figure out what they're talking about and who they're talking to. And uh, I might argue, and I've argued this in the past for different reasons, that the church is Israel. The church is the church. And the elect are the Jews. The Gentiles who chose to follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, like Rahab and Ruth and Caleb and Elijah and all those guys. They represent Israel, the people. And all Israel means is God has authority over you. So if you, if you feel like God has authority over you, if you feel like the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has authority over you, then you are called in Hebrew Israel. That is not the nation Israel. That's not uh, the, the, what do they call The house of Israel. That's just the word that they would use for somebody who has, who, whose God has authority over. So if Israel is the bride, if we're the bride, and we'll make this case later, if we're the bride and we're marrying the son, we go separately from the elect from the Jews, from Judah. We're Israel, they're Judah. Both are saved from, as if you read Ezekiel 37, you've got the two sticks, right? Israel and Judah. So they're different people. And the whole point of this section of Ezekiel is what? So that he can bring the sticks together and make them one. So you've got this group Judah, well, we know who that is. That's the Jews. And we've got this group Israel. And if you're a 21st century American Christian, you think, Oh, that's easy. That's the Jews. So I've got two sticks, the Jews and the Jews. Eh, that's not going to work. So you've got two different people, the Jews, Judah, and Israel, the Gentiles who've chosen to follow after the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And at the end, they must be brought together and be one because God does not mix. He cannot, he never mixes. He seeks to make one like the other. So he's bringing those two sticks together. Same thing you see in Malachi, same thing you see in Hosea. You see it all over the place. The whole purpose of the tribulation is the bride of the son is over here and he's trying to take the family of the bride, if you will, and bring them together in this wedding feast. So if, the, if, the, if Israel is the bride and Judah are the guests, they have to be together. And you think about all the parables about the wedding. You know, there's two good wedding parables in Matthew, right? About the, the ones who are called wouldn't come. So go out in the highways and the byways and get the people that will come. And then even in the midst of that, there's one who showed up without a wedding garment and he gets cast out of the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
and all, you know, we've talked about Genesis 24 and Ruth, and it's always this picture of, I would say, the Gentile bride marrying <clears throat> the Jewish kinsman redeemer. And then through that, the Jewish, the guests, Naomi, are saved. That's always the picture. The two become one. So when you're reading this as a, as a post-tribber and you're reading it in English and you think the tribulation can't come until after these things happen, I might suggest that you're lumping everybody into the group of being elect. Because Israel is different than Judah. But in the end, they're both elect. They both come together. And we'll, you know, we'll get into a lot more of that later. Okay, so back on the post-tribulation bandwagon, John chapter 6, verse 39 and 40. And this is the Father, the Father's will, which has sent me, that all of which he has given me, I should lose nothing, but I should raise it up again on the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believe on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Well, when's the last day? I mean, is the last day the, the last day? You know, I always encourage you to read the Bible literally. It says at the last day. So he's going to lift us up on the last day. It doesn't say like seven years previous to the last day. It says at the last day. So who's he talking to? Okay, thank you. The Jews. He's talking to the Jewish religious leadership. He's not talking to Gentiles. He's not talking to Ruth or Rivka or Caleb or Elijah, or me, or you. He's talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees who ask him a specific question. And his response was to them. So if you're a post-tribulation believer, because you read this and it says clearly he's going to raise him up on the last day, and you think the last day is the last day, because your Bible study teachers always said, try to interpret it literally if you can. Well. You have to believe in a post-tribulation rapture. There's no other way to believe. The word last, I might add, is eskatos from ecto. And it means to hold or possess. So this word in Greek that's translated in English as last is more an idea of possession than of date, of calendar. He's talking about he has possession of these people, not necessarily on the very last day before the Lord comes back, in my opinion. And I know I'm not doing a very good job standing up for the post-tribulation guy. John 6, 44, no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me him draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. So it's the same question. What is that? What, what is, what's the last day? And does that have any bearing on the book of Revelation? Who's he talking to? Talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's talking to the Jews. When do the Jews get taken up? If the rapture happens to the church, 
whenever it happens. When do the Jews get taken up? On the last day, just before the Lord comes back. As soon as they know, they, they, they figure out who the Messiah is, then they're trapped in the book of Revelation. They're trapped in the tribulation. There's no rapture for them until the last day when the Lord comes back. When Yeshua returns and begins his thousand-year reign, that's when they're saved. Okay, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6. Uh-oh, I'm getting angry phone calls already. Are they... Is he, hi, Damon. Um, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6. And I saw the angel come down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he said, and he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and he bound him a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones and they that sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God. Which he had, and which he had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither received the mark on their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that takes part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Do you know who's talking? Do you know who said that? This is, this is in the book of um, Revelation. Thank you, John. And what's the deal with John? Where is he? The island of Patmos. No, that's not correct. Because in verse 4, well, he was on the Isle of Patmos until chapter 4, verse 1. And then it says that the Lord said to him, Come up hither, and I will show you the things which must be hereafter. He was raptured. He was taken up to heaven, and he was shown all the things which must happen hereafter. So he was at Patmos until the Lord raptured him. It's God, dude. Don't ask questions. I don't know. You know, maybe there's, there's, you know, there's what, what's that stationary store in Eagle Vale? Maybe there's one of those in heaven. I don't know. I'm sure, I'm sure God could come up with a papyrus if he needed one. Okay, so again, you have to pay attention to who's talking, who they're talking to, and the context. He was not on Patmos. He was in heaven. He'd already been raptured. And if he is representing the church, because the church, chapters 1 through 3 are all about the church. Starting in verse uh, chapter 4, verse 1, John is taken out of there. Well, if he's representing the believer, because the church is never mentioned again. 
all the way from 4 through 19 when it talks about the bowls and the wraths and the pain to come and the many that will die and the horrible, terrible things and the diseases and the wars and the tribulation and the enemy. All of that is 4 through 19. Not once do you hear about the church because presumably the church is gone. These weren't for the church. These were for the elect, I would suggest, the Jews, who already know the Tanakh, but they missed the Messiah. The Gentile bride of the son of the father who is taken knows the Messiah, but doesn't know anything about the Tanakh. So if what I believe is true, we'll be there for seven years at the feet of the Lord, learning about the Tanakh, learning about his instructions and commands and judgments and statutes, because we're terrible at it. But we did know who the Messiah was. The whole seven years is to teach the people who already knew the commandments, judgments, and statutes of the Lord who the Messiah was. So they're bringing two sticks together to one. At the last day, you're going to have one group of people that knows the testimony of Jesus and keeps the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which is what you read. I mean, how many times have we read that? Three times in the book of Revelation, it says that. And throughout scripture, it says that. The, the seed of the woman, the, the people that are saved at the end times are those who have both the testimony of the Messiah and keep the commandments of the Lord. Well, how's that going to happen? Because we're terrible at the, at the commandments part. And the Jews missed the whole Messiah thing. So God sets it up in such a way that at the end of all this stuff, they're all one people. It's now one stick. They're the same people. They're his people. I don't know. That's just my opinion. Okay, so then the other thing is, as you're reading this, and I know I'm doing a terrible disservice to the posties, but as you're reading through this, the post guys will say, oh, well, there's only two resurrections. You know, if you're a pre-tribber, you have to have three resurrections because they're confusing the resurrection and the rapture. They see that as, they see the rapture as a resurrection. And then you have to have the first resurrection. And then there has to be the second resurrection. So they say to, be, to believe in a pre-trib rapture, we believe in three resurrections and there aren't three, there's only two. Well, do you believe the rapture is the same as the resurrection? And well, well, you say no way, but Bible scholars for 2000 years have treated it as though it were the same, in spite of the fact that the word resurrection in Greek is anastasis and the word rapture is harpazo. They're two completely different things. So having, does having a rapture count as a resurrection? <laughs> Don't you? Exactly. Thank you. The millennial in the room comes up with the most obvious that these for 2,000 years, the most brilliant minds in Christianity missed that. Don't you have to be dead? <laughs> A rapture takes people who are alive. 
Yes, the dead in Christ ride first. Yes, that's a resurrection. I know. Okay, so um, let me read. It's interesting as I've done some study on all of these positions. Um, they all point to several of the same verses and say, see, I told you. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and the voice of the archangel with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise, and this is this word antistasis, first. Then we which are alive and remain will be caught up, harpazo, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall ever be with the Lord. Okay, if you're a postie, you point to this, because it obviously speaks of a post-tribulation rapture. If you're a pre-tribber, you point to this because it obviously speaks of a pre-tribulation rapture. If you're a mid-tribber, you point to this because it obviously speaks of a mid-trib rapture. All right, let's try something different. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 54. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruption shall have put on incorruption, and the mortal shall have put on immortality, there then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So obviously, you can see that that points exactly to a post-tribulation rapture. There's no question, right? Or a pre-trib rapture, or maybe a mid-trib rapture. Okay, but at least in Corinthians, it tells you when this is going to happen. At the last trump. That's helpful. So when's the last trump? Okay, now it, it could be November 5th, right? The last trump. Okay, that would, be, that would be just like God to work, you know. Okay, but that, all right, I'm, I'm not going to go there. Um, all right, now look, and again, if you, if you read about, you know, you, these guys, they're just, oh my gosh, they're so smart. I mean, they've been to 115 seminaries and they've got like 94 letters after their names and they've spent 60 or 70 years studiously studying the Bible. <sighs> When's the last Trump? <laughs> they don't know because it only says it twice in scripture and one we just read. This is not helpful to them and they cannot figure this out. And I don't, I, you know, it's, there are things in scripture that I look at and think, well, this can't be that easy. I mean, these guys for 2000 years can't figure this out. I mean, these are sharp guys. They've made their whole living in robes and ties and great hair and stuff. And what's coming up? What's the next feast that's coming up? September 16th, 17th, whatever it is. Pardon me? Okay, tabernacles. And the first of the tabernacles feasts is Rosh Hashanah. Thank you so much. Okay, and you all know what Rosh Hashanah means. Okay, it's the feast. <laughs> it's the feast of trumpets. 
Okay, so to celebrate New Year's, since the time of Moses, it's celebrated, it's called the Feast of Trumpets because it's celebrated with a hundred trumpet blasts during the day. There's long ones and short ones, and it's, you know, if you get the whole trumpet thing, it has, it has meaning. The feast ends, this is, I know this is profound. <laughs> Thank you. The feast ends at the last trump. <laughs> now, I'm thinking I can't possibly be the only guy without a tie in the world that knows that. These guys are professionals. I mean, they could read the Bible without having the Bible. They know the Bible. They know it backwards and forwards and inside and out. And I have just spent probably two hours today reading some of the greatest minds in Christendom explain to me what they believe the last trump is. None of them realize that the Feast of Trumpets has a last trump. Now, I don't know. <laughs> what, what am I supposed to do with that? You've got Passover, the day of Passover, where the sacrificial lamb was slain, where the blood was put on the doorpost. The day of Passover, Yeshua was crucified and died. On the Feast of First Fruits, he rose from the dead. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was given to Peter and 3,000 in Jerusalem. On the day of Pentecost, the Torah was given and Israel became a nation. On the day of Pentecost, the Gentile church, or the church, the, the way, began. On the exact days, there's th there are three more feasts to come. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and Tabernacles. There are three things to come in, in the eschatology. There have, there's a rapture of the church. There's a return of Jesus. And there's the home going for all the believers. Now, I believe, as a pre-tribulationist, that the rapture of the church happened seven years previous to the return of Jesus, which happens a thousand years previous to the final homegoing. But there are three events. And as we read them in Scripture, uh, we, we tend to, you know, you can read them in one line, and we think, boom, 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 they're going to happen just like the feast, you know, because the feasts happen over a period of, uh, 15 days. Boom, boom, boom. Well, it doesn't say that anywhere in Scripture, and that's not the way Scripture operates. You can read things in Scripture, and there can be three, four, five hundred years between periods. It's, you know, the period on the page. It's, it just reads that way, but it's not. We have to think about it. So if, say, for instance, Rosh Hashanah, which is New Year's, a new beginning, a new beginning. That's what a new year is, right? And you mean make revelation or whatever those things are, resolutions and, you know, we change our lives and we're all committed to all this new stuff because it's a new year. 
right? It's a new beginning. I might suggest to you that the ultimate new beginning would be to take us out of this neighborhood and move it into that one. That would be a great new beginning. That could be Rosh Hashanah, New Year's, the Feast of Trumpets, which ends with the last trump that we just read about in 1 Corinthians. Because all this happens at the last trump. So <clears throat> I'm sorry to my um, post-tribulation friends. I didn't do a great job in expressing their point of view. But you see how they get there. If you read the book in English and you're committed to the way the words read in English, there's no other option. The, it's the last day. The church is taken on the last day. You wouldn't. You would never know it. And, and, and that's, I mean, honestly, over the years, that's been the hardest thing for me. I mean, I'm an idiot. I barely made it out of high school. I work with my hands and I wouldn't have it any other way. I'm not an office guy. I don't think things through, ask my wife. I'm good for maybe one thing at a time. If there's one box open, I am struggling to deal with getting that one box dealt with. And then she comes in and says, oh, well, can you? No, no, I can't. Now I've forgotten what box I had open. I gotta start all over again. Okay. That's me. That's how I am. That's probably most guys are like that. How do I know about things like the last Trump and these guys don't? I struggle with that. Is it possible that uh, I'm right? No. It's more possible that they're right and I'm wrong. But you guys have to make your own decisions. I think uh, the way that if, if you did any research this week, you can search uh, post-tribulation rapture, and there are thousands of websites. And some of them are quite good. And some of them are run by people that are very intelligent. And I read them, and I think, but they're not looking at the meaning of the words. They're not looking at how the Hebrews look at scripture they're looking they're reading it in english and making a determination on what the english words would mean and to me that's um almost criminal negligence it wasn't written in english you know jesus is jewish all of the apostles are jewish every writer of every book of every word that we have on our electronic device or in, in a real book was Jewish. They're from a Jewish culture. They speak and think in a way in an Eastern culture that we don't, we don't do in this country. We don't think cyclically. We think linearly, you know, I'm going to the store, but you're not because you're coming back. Right. The wife is gone. We've been married for what, 800 years? So she's made 12 million trips. 
and she never once went to the store. She always came back every time. And I'm amazed many times that she comes back, but she does, right? We don't think that way. We think like she's going to the store. Hebrew doesn't think that way. No Eastern mind thinks that way. They always think cyclically. She's picking stuff up and coming back to make tacos for you guys. You know, it, it wouldn't even be a question. The words mean different things. And how can you not know that Rosh Hashanah is the Feast of Trumpets that has a last trump? Right. Well, see, and I'm not saddled with the burden of being too smart. So <laughs> to me, and, I, and again, I, you know, I, I, I don't mean to make fun of them. They're, they're, it's a legitimate position. And when you look at their documents, and if you read a guy who's really knowledgeable, like a couple of the guys I read today, they can make a pretty decent case if you're not uh, totally familiar with scripture. And I don't know. So know that the vast majority of people that call themselves Christians believe amillennialism. And we'll do that in a couple of weeks because basically I think that's what the Catholics taught. And then Lutherans and Episcopals and all these others are basically Catholics with less funny stuff. It means that basically the book of revelation is uh, figurative. Those are just all the wraths and the bowls and the judgments and all that. They're not specific things that are going to happen at a certain time. You know, they're just sort of general ideas. And it's like you said, you can look at the world today and you can see many of the things that are contained in the judgments and the bowls and the wraths. You can see those things happening. And it's, you know, it's, it's, I see how they get there. And Patrick will make an excellent case for it. But I don't know. I choose to believe most of the time that the Bible is literal unless it tells you it's not or, you know, but I also believe in typology and there are so many typographical, is that the right word? <laughs> pictures. There are so many pictures in scripture that uh, explain things because when the Bible was written, it wasn't written. It was spoken and it was spoken for several thousand years. And that's how you get the Matzeroth, you know, all the stars mean certain things and different constellations tell the story of, you know, the salvation and all that, because there was, there wasn't anything written. And even to the time of Moses, remember Moses last gig was to write the scriptures down, right? The first, the, the first five books, the Pentateuch to write them down. So that meant there was a grand total of, Oh, let's uh, count them up. One Bible. So it's not like everybody could read the Bible. And then Moses had that one book written on the stones as they crossed uh, the river Jordan and were and about to go to Jericho. So now there's two. There's the book that's contained in the tabernacle. And now it's written in stone across the river Jordan. So by the time of Moses... Uh, after Moses, by the time of Joshua, 
there are now two copies of scripture plus the oral tradition. And it hasn't been, but recently, I mean, you know, on the time scale of time, recently, when people actually had their own Bible, when people could read for themselves the things that the Lord said. And because we don't speak Hebrew anymore, it had to be translated into Greek and then into Latin and then into English. And you can't translate Hebrew. It's untranslatable because it's a pictographic language. It's just a bunch of, it's 304,483 pictures. It's like one of those flip books. It can't be translated mechanically into another language. So when you translate it, the translator does the best they can do, but there is no translator on earth that doesn't have some preconceived notion of what the book already says. And because there's no mechanical translation, you get a lot of things in any translation that when you look at the Hebrew and break it down, that's really not what it says. But that's what they believed it to say. And you could, you know, there's only 422 Hebrew words. So there's a lot of flexibility in each word. And you're trying to present an idea in English that has hundreds of thousands of words using 422 words and some variants. There's going to be, I mean, there has to be, you have to make a decision as to what you think it says. And I'm not saying that the King James, uh, you know, translators or the Geneva Bible translators or Tyndale or any of those guys weren't doing the exact best that they could do and weren't being, you know, led by the spirit. I'm sure they were, but it's just impossible to translate accurately from Hebrew into another language. Well, we don't speak Hebrew, so we have to read it in another language. So when, when you look at stuff like this, I think it's worth our time to maybe look and see what, you know, what's the culture? Who are you talking to? What are they saying? Where are they? Why are they saying that? And what do the words really mean? And sometimes it will lead you down a road to, to believe that last day means the last day. And sometimes it'll lead you down a road to saying, well, that doesn't mean that at all. <laughs> so if anybody here is a pre-tribber, know that you're in the extreme minority. Amillennialism, huge. Premillennialism, huge. Postmillennialism, eh, not so big. Mid-tribbers, there's a few. Pre-tribbers, hmm, maybe in third place. But okay, so that's it for today.